Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. That's right. The Whoop membership includes hardware and software and analytics that's designed to help you improve your health and improve your performance. You can get on Whoop if you use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, and that will give you 15% off a Whoop membership. All right, we got a fascinating guest this week, Brian Johnson, a famous and talented entrepreneur. He is currently the founder and CEO of Kernel. Before that, his company Braintree, uh, which you may know as the owner of Venmo, uh, which they bought for $26 million in 2012. Brian then went on to sell Braintree for $800 million a year later. So obviously a very successful entrepreneur. And then he took $54 million of his own money and poured it straight into Kernel which is a groundbreaking company that is building technology that measures the activity of your brain. As Brian puts it, it's really trying to build almost a whoop for your brain. Uh, They're developing hardware, the likes of which the consumer market really hasn't seen before. And it's all with this goal to help humanity gain uh, a much greater understanding of the inner workings of the brain. Now, Whoop and Kernel actually recently did a study that showed a direct correlation between sleep and impulse control. So that's something that Brian and I get into on the podcast. We actually found that the more sleep people got, the more the brain was actively engaged in the participant's willpower. So that's right. This technology can measure things like willpower in your brain. We discuss Brian's beginnings in business and how his life changed overnight with the success of Braintree his mission to discover the secrets of the human brain, what the implications of Kernel's technology might be. For those of you who really are interested in sort of future tech, almost sci-fi level tech, I think you're going to enjoy this aspect of the conversation. Why his Whoop data convinced him to start eating his last meal of the day at nine in the morning. Yep, that's right, nine in the morning. May not be for everyone, but it was for Brian. And his simple trick for increasing his heart rate variability. I think this is a great podcast. And without further ado, here is Brian. Brian, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Thanks for having me. You've had an amazing career, which I've uh, admired as a fellow entrepreneur. I want to start by asking you if it was always obvious to you that you were going to be an entrepreneur. It became most obvious when I turned 21. I had just returned from Ecuador, spending two years among extreme poverty there. And Returning to the U.S. and the opulent lifestyle we have in comparison, uh, I felt this burning desire to try to do something in life that would be meaningfully relevant to other people. It didn't make sense to me that I would try to get a job and work until I was 65 and then retire. What was pretty clear to me was that I would probably want to achieve a permissionless situation. So most of the time in life, when we want to do something in life, we need to ask the permission of others, uh, investors for money, uh, governments for regulation, co-founders and, and co-workers for them doing the same thing. And so it requires this process of getting others bought in. It's very difficult to do uh, many things on your own. And so the plan I came up with was that basically I would become an entrepreneur. I would try to make uh, you know some money and with that capital, then afford myself the chance in the future of being able to do something meaningful for a large number of people, because it was difficult for me at the age of 21 to figure out the singular thing I could do with no resources. 
Now that didn't stop you from trying because you launched three startups in mm-hmm. college, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. What did you What did you kind of learn about yourself in that in those first entrepreneurial uh, runs? From the starting point, I didn't necessarily have any outlier abilities. For example, in school, in high school, or even in, in car to college, I hadn't been an outstanding student. I had to work extraordinarily hard to get good grades, uh, like two or three times harder than my peers, uh, just to achieve the same grades they did. And I, I wasn't a standout in any given discipline. And so I, I really was trying to figure out what can I do? And the first few companies I built did reveal to me that I can learn something very quickly. I can piece together multiple systems at the same time and in doing so, find original insights, things that others may not have done before. And that's true with you know, payments. It's true with, with the company I built in Braintree Venmo. It's true with Kernel. And so it's, I guess I, maybe I would say my experience in the world is I feel like I don't belong anywhere. I'm an odd duck and I'm not easily categorizable. I don't, I'm not a certain archetype. Uh, my story is not really easy to understand. Uh, but it really has been in this nuanced systems thinking, learning new things and finding, trying to find some valuable insight hidden that uh, is just not part of the zeitgeist. In some ways, that's a, that's a convenient starting place for an entrepreneur because so much of starting something new is putting yourself in a position to not fit in. And mm. It sounds like you, know, you spent a lot of, uh, at least a lot of your adolescence or, or growing up with that, a little bit of that feeling. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that you've had so much success as an entrepreneur. I, I remember when I first started Whoop feeling like, you know, oh, I wasn't going into consulting or banking. And like, there was almost mm-hmm. like a, a mm-hmm. level of like insecurity that came mm-hmm. with that. Um, so, so, mm-hmm. okay. So founded Braintree, which turned out to be a massive success uh, in 2007. What led you into payments? I was in the middle of a, a venture that wasn't going well. And I was... I had racked up a credit card debt with multiple credit cards. Uh, I was basically living on $2,000 a month, uh, being married and having one child. We, wow. we would go on one, week, one date a week and spend $7.50. That was our budget. And we were doing everything we could. I was trying to finish school and do the startup. And so basically, I couldn't make ends meet and provide for the young family I started. And how old were you at, at this time? 24. So that's a lot 25. for a 20, 24, 25 year old. Okay. It was a lot. And so reflecting that my entrepreneurial efforts uh, were producing mixed results, <laughs> I, I started evaluating could I potentially get a job and would that help me? And the problem I, with that is, of course, I got back into the time swap occasion. But if I dedicated my time, they paid me an hourly wage and no scenario made sense to me. I couldn't get an hourly job that paid me enough to do all the things I was trying to do. And so I found this job, this job posting uh, for selling credit card processing door to door. It was 100% commission. And again, it was the only thing I could do of uh, how to maximize time and still make this other startup work. And I started doing it. And I became the company's number one salesperson. I broke all their sales records, uh, doing a very simple strategy. I'd walk into a business and they would see me and they'd say, okay, you're the fifth, pe- fifth person I've seen today uh, so far. Uh, like, I've got stuff to do. Please don't bother me. So I had to figure out an entry point, something they cared about, so they'd listen to me. And I say, I'd say, but credit card processing is uh, it's messy, it's complicated, and 
it's known for its unscrupulousness. Like people take advantage of uh, people's misunderstanding of the complexity of the industry. And so I said, I'll pay you a hundred dollars uh, for, for three minutes of your time. And if you don't like what I say, I'll give you the, I'll give you a hundred dollars. So I sit down and I would open up my book and I'd say, here's how the, here's what the industry is. Here's how it works. Here's who the players are. Here are the games they play. I really have nothing unique to offer you other than you're going to trust me. and I'm going to give you clean uh, statements and good customer service. That's really it. And by doing that, I think people thought finally someone's dealing with me in, in a clean fashion. I just want to settle oh. this and be good. And, uh, and so I worked basically part-time doing that and achieved that result. And then after spending- How many, how many times did you have to pay out $100? Never. Isn't that I mean, amazing? I, I suspect people like probably the best, that. that's the <laughs> That's the best entry point ever. <laughs> so th- then I did it for a few months and I thought, wow, this- this industry is broken. Uh, you know, PayPal had had built payments in the early days of the internet, and once they had been once they had been acquired by eBay, their innovation had really stopped. And so there had been seven or eight years where they really hadn't stayed up to, to date with uh, all the technological developments. And so I saw that opportunity, and I started Braintree, and we modernized payments into making it dead simple for a developer to get payments up and going, to make everything transparent and clean. I just made made the experience delightful for for people. You also had one of the best uh, acquisitions I got to think in the last twenty years, mm-hmm. which is Venmo, which you paid twenty six million dollars for. If I'm reading this correctly, that's correct. When I, I mean, started Venmo's bring- Venmo's massive today, right? I mean, that that's got to be one of the best <laughs> one of the best <laughs> purchases, truly. That's what uh, many people have, have told me. It ranks in the top few best acquisitions ever. Uh, I haven't seen the data, but a few people have mentioned that. And then you went on to sell Braintree for $800 million to PayPal, which must have been an enormous outcome for you personally as well after uh, previously going on dates for $7 once a week. It's true. I grew up poor. My mom made my clothes for me. And uh, when I went to grade school, we just made do with what we had. And then, of course, when I started uh, starting businesses in my early 20s, going to school and starting businesses, I never had money. I was always in debt. So yeah, when, when I sold this, it was the very first time in my life that I had money. Pretty binary. It was. It's, it's fascinating how often that, that turns out to be the case for founders and entrepreneurs, like real overnight change like that. If you go back in time, would you have considered running it out longer? I'm actually very happy. I, I mean, I think Braintree is... So I, I sold it in 2013. Uh, the company's probably worth in the tens of billions easily now uh, since. Totally. But the the goal I had was not money uh, in terms of yeah. like how much money can I build? The, the goal was to get enough money to then go after the, the aspiration I had at 21 years of age. Like, can I do something meaningful for the people on planet Earth? And the offer we got for Braintree uh, Venmo was sufficient to give me the amount of money to basically be in a permissionless game where I could now take that capital, I could survey the world, and I could choose to do almost anything. And that was the freedom I I had been looking for my entire life. And so it wasn't, can I climb the, the Forbes list? It was do something meaningful that matters, not only for today, but would matter at 2050, uh, 2100, and you know, 2,500. So it matter hundreds of years into the future. 
And so that was the game I've really been wanting to play my entire life. And it became a reality after that acquisition. Well, congratulations to you. And obviously you found an amazing home for Braintree and its employees, and, and it's just been a continued success. And to your point about being a, uh, a missionary as much as a visionary, you took, I think, over $50 million of your own money mm-hmm. and rolled it straight into Kernel, which uh, I'm excited to talk to you about. Explain what is Kernel. It seemed to me that humanity is playing one game right now. If, if you look at the entire thing, it all comes down to one game, and that is of intelligence. We're building this uniquely capable intelligence in the form of artificial intelligence. Humans are, we are the co-evolutionary partner of this intelligence. And everything we're doing is, is a byproduct of our intelligence. And that now that we have this ability to pair humans and machines in this increasingly intertwined way, it's a question of what is this evolutionary product going to become? And I wanted to figure out a way to do this in a more methodical, structured, and accelerated way. How could we potentially up-level humans? How could we up-level ourselves? And I'm not talking about uh, shaving off tens of milliseconds for Olympic records or you know, a few more points on that Q scale. How could we reimagine ourselves as a species? Uh, so far evolved that we look back at our, our former selves and, and we'd look painfully primitive. And the thing that I thought was most relevant in that question was we can measure and quantify pretty much everything in the known universe except for our brains. We can't do that on a regular basis. So wearing whoop gives me a tremendous amount of insight into my overall well, wellness, whether it's my sleep, my HRV, my, my uh, performance in my cardiovascular endeavors, and we don't have that for the brain. And so I wanted to figure out if we could do it. So I started the kernel to basically with the question of, could you build a measurement device for the brain that would bring brain measurement into the mainstream? And if you once you can measure something, as you know, data is almost like driving by a roadside accident. You can't help but look at it. And so what if you had data about your brain, about uh, how you performed in a, in a conversation or uh, in an emotion, a high emotional strain situation or in uh, a creativity task. Like, and what if you could start assigning numbers to these things? What if I could quantify what a fight cost me uh, mentally? And so I, most the experts in the field I spoke to told me there was no, no viable path forward, that the technologies that existed today, the, uh, for example, fMRI and MEG, they were big and expensive, but they were very good. And then you had lower cost things like EEG, but they just weren't good enough. And so I, I, uh, built a team. Uh, The team's now uh, just over 90, 36 or so have PhDs. And we basically set out and we said, is there anything here that we can do that would bring brain interfaces into the mainstream? So we start measuring our minds and brains in the same way we measure our weight or our blood glucose levels or our heart rate or HRV. And we successfully figured out two technologies over the past three years. And both now are, are coming to market. It's so amazing. And the story that you described, and I think this is why I'm, I'm drawn to your company, or, or at least we have a mutual ex- respect for what each is building. It's so true uh, that it's such a fundamental thing, brain performance and cognitive performance, and yet we can't measure it. And then sure enough, when we can measure it, how much is it going to unlock about our potential? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really exciting. So, okay, let's explain now the, the products that you've developed. One is called Kernel Flow, and it measures uh, the oxygenation and deoxygenation of brain activity. 
So neurons fire and blood and oxygen move about to supply the neurons with what they need. And we measure that. And so you can think of it like a whoop for the brain. Yeah. We're basically using optical technology, the same thing as the whoop device is. And that device is the first one. It's the first time in the world a technology could be reasonably imagined to be in every home by 2030. It, it hits the performance thresholds. It hits the cost thresholds. And so we need to develop the markets, but it's it's not unreasonable to imagine it could be in every home by 2030, just like computers, uh, PCs were, were uh, the offspring of, of mainframes. The other one is kernel flux, which measures, elect- it's a magnetic uh, measurement tool, and you're looking at neurons firing. And we reference it as, it's, it's like a supercomputer of a brain interface, or it's like one of the most powerful brain interfaces in the world, uh, because you can acquire entire cortical activity at the speed of neurons firing, and you can do so with a person in a naturalistic environment and they're moving around. So basically things you can't do today. For example, if you want to get a high quality brain scan, you go to an MRI, this you know, multi-million dollar machine, you sit in this very small cavity, you have to stay perfectly still. You have 120 decibel sounds ringing in your ear if you've had one. It's extremely uncomfortable and unnaturalistic to do any kind of serious neuroscience. And so with our system, we'll be able to capture real-time entire cortical activity of the brain. And so what we think we've done is we think that we've created the most powerful brain interfaces ever built in terms of how they score of accessibility, uh, quality of neural data, the ability to combine both data sets for insights of the brain. Uh, we think that we will create the largest neural data sets in history at the fastest possible speed in history, which will lead to hopefully what we, we hope will come from this is a new era of neuroscience and insight for people where just like I now base my lifestyle on my Whoop device, people would begin changing their lifestyle based upon their brain data, including the news they consume, the friends they have, the work schedule they have, the diet they have, everything would be an input for them to manage the wellness and performance of their mind with these devices. You're going to be able to quantify how, I mean, you're going to be able to quantify everything, but you're going to be able to quantify whether certain people should be in your life or not like whether you should watch television or not, or Mm -hmm. what you should read or not, how you're actually performing in every single meeting. You're exactly right. Were you processing the information properly? You know, were you reacting to it properly? I mean, it's, it's really profound to think about and, and I'm smiling because I know it's, it's kind of inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. Will you, your intuitions are spot on and you know this because you've been building whoop, but once you have the ability to measure something, you can run an infinite number of experiments to see what happens. Like, what if I eat this kind of food at this time of day? What if I drink coffee at this time of day? You all have, then you have measurement on your sleep and your HRV and your heart rate. So you, you can actually quantify everything in your life just from your whoop device. So I mean, like many, many things. And so the same thing is true with, with, with uh, interface. So you nailed it is that you basically take, basically can begin the scientific method of measuring everything. And so we, it, what's fun to me is we largely just have inputs in the world come to us today, uh, news and images and colors and certain emotions. And it just all comes in and it's at a dizzying pace, but we really don't know what's happening because of it. And we can't track it. We our, our conscious mind only captures a sliver of what is really going on in our brains. And so, yeah, it does. It opens up a, a whole new frontier of basically 
how is society going to operate when we can measure what effect certain things have on each of us? Now, uh, explain the study that we did together. I've been working on my sleep very hard for the past couple of years. And I had built a, a fine-tuned intuitions because of my Whoop device, of, of diet, of routine, et cetera. And so I had the question of what effects does would my sleep have on my cognition? So when I perform the next day, in my reaction time, in my emotional control, et cetera, and we set up a study with our prototype system. And so we did, uh, we had a whoop device, we measured our natural sleep every night, and then we did up to 18 sessions over 13 weeks measuring, um, we did resting state, impulse control, like whether I could stop myself from doing something, uh, like willpower, um, memory task. And what was interesting when we looked at the data was that my deep sleep, total sleep, and sleep latency with Whoop was correlated with my, basically my willpower, my impulse control. And so in the scenario, for example, where it's seven o'clock at night, I'm looking at a delicious sugar cookie that a friend just brought to my house. And I think, ah, do I do it? And so is there enough willpower in me to say no? Because I know if I eat that, it's going to decimate my deep sleep and I'm going to feel awful the next day. And what our, our study showed is that I not only perform better on the task in terms of go, no go, which was, can I not push a button when I see a red flower versus a green flower? But the neural data showed independent uh, correlations with my, um, my sleep. And so neural data was showing a unique insight about my brain that behavioral data alone wasn't what I, whether or not I pushed a button. And so that was a big question for us uh, is what value can we glean from neural data in the situation? And the first, even with this prototype device, we found that there was compelling data for it. Yeah, I just want to underscore that point because it's so interesting, right? You found that it's not like, obviously there's a binary decision in the, in the, the study write-up, which I encourage people to read. You talk about this idea of eating a cookie late at night or not, right? Yeah. So obviously that's a binary. What the neural data is actually able to show you is also the degree to which your willpower was prepared for that moment, right? And it's on a spectrum all of a sudden because the binary is interesting, but it's not enough, right? If you can actually understand the degree to which someone was prepared or not prepared to make a decision, that's such a wealth of information. Exactly right. And so this, again, was a pilot study. Our intent was not to produce a peer review study of the paper, uh, of, of the results. It was to build intuitions. It was to build our tools out. But yeah, I mean, if you... If we were to take this more seriously with our, our now production device, then we might be able to start saying things such as, you know, when I get this kind of deep sleep, this kind of total sleep, and this kind of sleep latency, and I'm presented with a willpower task, maybe my brain only needs to spend 20% of the energy that I otherwise need to in order to accomplish the same thing. Or maybe certain regions of the brain fire in certain, certain patterns, which is just a better, you know, overall outcome for me. So we don't know if those things are true yet, but with given more time, and now that we have this device and the system set up, we can start making those kinds of observations, which will, again, will then build our intuitions of what really happens in our brain and our well-being in the following days based upon our lifestyles. It's so powerful. I mean, intuitively, of course, the more sleep you get, the, the higher your willpower. But to actually be able to show that and then to measure the degree to which it's the case for different individuals it's just going to unlock such unbelievable insights. For example, you're going to find out that there are certain people who are more resilient 
under less sleep or less uh, mm-hmm. or less resilient. Under, like it, there's, it's going to be the degree to which it affects people more profoundly as well. Like, for example, we see this with alcohol and whoop data. Where there's some mm-hmm. people, if they have a glass of red wine, it doesn't even matter if it's within three hours of bed or not. Their data the next day is just profoundly out of whack. And then there's some people who can get up to two drinks or so, and it's it doesn't have nearly as big of a, an effect. That's just alcohol. But imagine you can extrapolate that kind of insight into every decision that you make or every every way that you are reasoning with the world around you. I find that quite profound. Yeah, you're exactly right. In the same way, you couldn't take all Whoop user data and make a, then a individualized suggestion protocol because really the science is N of one. It's the person that you really want to measure and they want to get the data on that person. The same thing is true with brain interfaces that uh, I think the current, if I'm not mistaken, the current world record is something like 20 hours in a MRI scanner is the most anyone's ever done. And so by having that limited amount of data, you just can't form conclusions on lifestyles. You can't measure what happens to my brain performance if I have a glass of red wine before bed? And so, yeah, the kernels interface and Whoop are identical in that regards that we enable an N of one, uh, but also N of many. You can look at the population scale data, but also what exactly this individual optimizes for this individual's performance. You know who's going to be obsessed with this data is traders, like you know, stock traders and stuff who are trying to figure out why they made a good decision or why they made a bad decision. It's going to be so interesting. I was going to say, we've done a little bit of analysis there as well on things like sleep and heart rate variability and how they affect cognitive performance. When you like, you know, say you extrapolate how much, um, you know, what someone's trading performance was in a month or something like that, or their SAT scores. Like we're, we're very early on that stuff, but it, you know, there's some correlations emerging. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are going to be all over it. That's right. And there's an interesting study I like to reference frequently. It was, I think, done in Emory in 2013, where the researcher was trying to, he hypothesized, or he asked a question, could you determine the future popularity of a song based upon recording of neural data? And so he had teens listen to songs and MRI, fMRI, and then ask them questions afterwards. And then three years later, he went back and analyzed the data, and he found out that there was meaningful correlation between the person's brain data uh, in the future success, success of the song and less so for their opinions. So in other words, the opinions, the person's opinion didn't really matter a whole lot. Their brain data was a more accurate predictor. And so right now, there's we kind of have this default mode in society where we think or we imagine our conscious selves are it, it is the authority. Like we when I speak, I'm the authority for Brian, and what I say is fully the truth of Brian. But as we get more and more data, it's going to change where we're going to understand that there's other stuff going on in our minds that we're unaware of that is potentially more accurate, potentially more authoritative, potentially just different versions of ourselves. And that's going to be a fundamental shift in society where you know, imagine the playful state where you and I were talking, and we both have our brains um, in real time adjacent to us. And so we're having a four-person conversation between us instead of you and me only uh, because we're looking at this other perspective that we have that we just don't have access to. Yeah, it's like an introspective person's dream of having all this data. I think I think what's what's challenging is that there's a lot of people who will be really kind of scared by what the data can reveal about themselves that maybe they didn't even know about themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's going to tell us a lot too about genes. You know, how much is is born versus made? 
right? Uh, about about human beings. I, I'm personally quite fascinated by that question. Mm-hmm. Obviously, system level, like just a base level of intelligence will be one major thing. But there's a whole question around, you know, building resilience for people. And is that something that you can really train yourself mm-hmm. through your environment or your circumstances? Or is it something that's also just innately given? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, I'm really interested to see what you guys end up learning about that. Agreed. And, if, and building on that, if you think about the advanced stages of this, of what happens, especially when you pair your brain with machine learning AI in real time. So currently, that the closest thing we have to that is is like Alexa and having a convert, you know, in these voice assistants of speaking back and forth. And there's this conversation, and these voice assistants have information on you in terms of the voice intonations, and they may have other contextual data of your location, etc but they don't have full access to like what is what is going on. And it's interesting as we think about how we might improve ourselves at a faster rate than we ever have before. But let's just say uh, I have a phobia of a given thing that I want to overcome. And I pair myself with a machine learning agent and I say, please, let's think, this is gonna be therapy for me. I wanna work through my phobia. Like I have a phobia of sharks. And it'd be interesting to say, all right, algorithm, you can use these styles and images, this uh, number of audio recordings, and whatever you give a data set, and then you let it run an algorithm to present things to you in a way that recreates your relationship with this with sharks. Now, this is I'm hypothesizing, uh, but this is the kinds of things that will become available where we'll start reimagining how we go about improving the things we find undesirable about ourselves and amplifying the things we find desirable and leveraging the most uh, robust tools we have. And so I think it really, if you start looking at layer one and two and three and four of how this technology moves throughout society, it really does create an opportunity set that we've never had before of reimagining what we can each individually become. Here's something that we have to work through or avoid. Let's say I'm one of the first people to buy this thing and I've got, I've been using it for five years by the time, you know, most people have have heard of it or whatever, 7 billion people get it. Let's hope there is this notion of, of you've become almost a superhuman before Mm -hmm. anyone else has caught up. How do you think about that? Because that is kind of the brave new world that we're entering where when, when a human being has that sort of additional layer of artificial intelligence or algorithms, yeah. you, you all of a sudden could create this, this sort of two-tiered form of species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I find promising about this is in the same way we discussed that you can't take all of Whoop data and give an individual their specific personalized optimized plan. What you can do is you can give them more general, uh, more general recommendations. For example, like this amount of time between your last meal of the day and going to sleep tends to produce highest you know, sleep scores, blank, blank, blank. And so you can give these general guidelines. And so these insights scale far beyond people who wear a Whoop device. You can share Correct. your knowledge with billions of people. And Correct. that there's still a difference between a person wearing that, you know, a, a kernel device doing measuring the brain and someone not. But what I am encouraged by is insights scale. You could generate an insight about a certain thing about 
when I consume news of a certain type, what can I expect about my emotional reaction, about how it affects my concentration, how it might affect my sleep, et cetera. These insights can be shared with billions of people. Now they're less precise than a person actually wearing a device, but that's why I think that th this information could level up everybody in society because we would be generally more aware of these interactions. And so I don't think it's a scenario where people really get left behind in meaningful ways. I think it actually could be a society scale level up because we remake society knowing this information. I think that I think that's generally optimistic and I think it's probably the right it, I think it's the right framework to approach it. But you would like you know if Elon Musk were on this call right now, the two of you would now be arguing about this sort of potential of super, superhumans because he he has, has gone on record saying that if you aren't getting these things implanted in your brains in the long run, you're going to have a disadvantage to the people who do. What, what would you say to that? You have to think about this through uh, the time scale someone is speaking about. And so we're in the earliest of days of brain interfaces, but certainly with the technology we've built, we could have it in the hands of millions of people in a few years time. Yeah. And by doing that, you, you start the process of creating the insights, the ecosystem around it. And so it, it's, a, it's a faster way to get this ecosystem started. Uh, and it's also the case that it allows for the experimentation of intervention modalities. For example, what can I do from a non-invasive perspective? If, if again, if I'm training with an AI agent every day, and it's doing so via my five sense senses instead of a stimulation protocol, uh, instead of like an implantable uh, chip, can that uh, be equally or comparably effective? And so I think it's really out to, it's not known yet which modalities are the most effective and why. I think for certain disease states, I think an implantable uh, technology will certainly be superior. Uh, for people who don't have a, a disease to to um, fix and they're trying to, uh, for other objectives, we may find non-invasive um, modalities to be equally, if not more effective. And um, if you look at the, the invasive approach, you have a pretty limited area of the brain you can deal with. Like you're, you're, you have, you know, I think uh, just, you know, tens of thousands of neurons where if you look at uh, like what we're trying to do is the entire cortical surface. Now it's like, there's a trade-off of every technology of what information you can truly get out uh, but I think it really is the earliest days of brain interfaces, and I think the story will roll out over the next decade or so. And there's also a lot of work being done on next generation technology of invasive, semi-invasive, non-invasive. And so it's, I think it's too early to make prognostications on exactly what's going to be ideal until we get our feet wet. Well, it's an exciting time for sure. And, uh, and I, I ask because I'm sure many, many listeners are thinking it themselves. Now, to, to underscore a point as well, you're saying that the kernel technology uh, is non-invasive in the sense that a future form factor could be a, a hat even, right? Or something yeah. of that nature. That's right. Right now, the form factor with flow, it's a bicycle helmet. So what early, uh, I mean, obviously we talked about your ability to have willpower if you get more sleep. What are some early other things that you've learned about the brain or the measurement of the brain that people may generally find interesting or useful in their lives? We're very early on. We've spent most of our efforts bringing the tech, building the technology and bringing it up. And the the sleep on cognition was our our inaugural, our inaugural study, which is our very first one to build up the systems to do it. 
We have three others we're doing in the coming months, uh, which we will be sharing more about this summer. But we really, our focus has been on uh, the technology and enabling others to explore these things. So for example, we, we currently have uh, some of the best academic institutions in the world who are receiving their device and they're looking at things like a TBI, concussion, stroke, aging of the brain, uh, lucid dreaming, meditation, meditation assistance. Uh, so about 20 or so different areas. Uh, psychedelics, uh, uh, one of our partners is looking at uh, psychedelic interventions. And so this year we will have our technology being used in, I'd say, 20 plus areas of interest. It's awesome. And and I would imagine next year, it's probably going to grow double or triple in terms of the exploration path. And that's what I'm saying that the earliest of days here, we don't know exactly where this technology is going to thrive yet. And so the focus has really been on getting the device out. And I just know from my personal experience of being having built intuitions because of the technology you've built uh, in a wearable device, but I know that I, and I started doing that with the kernel device of uh, looking at my performance next day with my willpower. So I know that these insights will probably start follow, start coming pretty quickly in various domains. Now, you mentioned being a WHOOP member. Thank you for being on WHOOP. What are some things that you've learned about uh, your body through using the product? The biggest, the most valuable insights, the, my last meal of the day is the most consequential factor for my sleep quality. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I tested all the way from two hours before bed, and now I have my final meal by about 9 a.m. or so. And so it's about, before I go to bed, I'm, I have about a 13-hour fast uh, going on, and that produces optimal. And then I've been able to systematically work on my HRV, and so I'm able to test intervention modalities. Like, funny enough, I find that when I sing before I go to bed, my HRV improves. Isn't that interesting? And so all these small little things I do, uh, it's like last night, uh, I was you know, singing with a group of friends for 30 minutes and uh, my HRV increased by 17%. <laughs> and, so, and what kind of singing? Are you in a band or this is just uh, like some kind of an opera or acapella group? No, it's just, it's a bunch of people. It's just, it's just sitting around choosing songs and singing along, uh, just, cool? mess, just messing around. But it, these are the kinds of unexpected things I wouldn't have thought that HRV training, because I've, I've approached HRV training, training saying, look at your you know, the, the time domain, the frequency domain analysis, and, and optimize for these parameters, and do this breathing exercise 5.5 seconds in and 8 seconds out. Uh, so there's there's really a lot of ways to methodically approach it. And then there's like, let's sing. <laughs> and that has its effect. And so I'd say that that's the fun of having measurement, is I get to try something new every single day. And I get to fine tune myself every single day. Whoop has allowed me to improve myself at a speed I've never been able to do before, which is I again why that. I'm happy about uh, this coupling of Cooper, uh, kernel and whoop is, you know, like now you add another measurement data, what other insights am I going to be able to achieve? And then how am I going to affect, change my lifestyle accordingly? And then how are others also going to do it? Yeah, it's really cool. And, uh, and thank you for saying that. And, and so in terms of singing, you know, I wonder, right, we, we see people, obviously, if you're in a better mood versus a worse mood, that's going to trigger a higher HRV and better sleep quality. We also see people who practice different types of mindfulness or, or mm. breathing exercises mm -hmm. that triggers typically better HRVs and mm -hmm. better sleep quality. 
And I wonder if singing is an interesting sweet spot <laughs> of, of like better mood and some form of breathing. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I've worked very hard at my HRV doing again, breathing exercises, mindfulness. I've taken all the traditional paths. And so I guess I mentioned the singing because it was totally unexpected. And I don't know what the effect is of why exactly my HRV increased. Maybe it was my mood. Maybe I was doing some type of vagus nerve stimulation by hitting low notes. I don't know. But this, by having data, I now have the opportunity to further pursue the question. But I just wouldn't probably have found that. I wouldn't have known my HRV, HRV increased now that I, you know, I started singing. It makes life pretty entertaining to be able to understand closed-loop nature of everything we do. Yeah, it's very cool. What else have you discovered about yourself or whatever? Uh, what else is part of your routine, your bedtime routine, perhaps? I mean, I know, for example, when my resting heart rate is uh, 46 beats per minute, right before I go to bed, I'm going to get near perfect sleep. And so modulating where my resting heart rate is according to my, my state of emotional stress, uh, my food intake, my exercise routines, all the above, being able to identify what my heart resting heart rate needs to be allows me to then build back through the entire day. And so, um, you know, the, the sleep thing is like a discovery afterwards where identifying the resting heart rate is something I can now work towards the entire day. And, mm -hmm. um, so I work it forwards and backwards, uh, for the insights. So that's interesting. So you're thinking over the course of the day, how can I get my heart rate to be at 46 before I go to bed? That's exactly right. And what are you doing for exercise or breathing that is helping to, to get to that level? I use a metabolic equivalency task, METS, uh, to quantify my exercise. And so according to uh, how vigorous the exercise is and what type, but I basically try to hit certain levels of exertion over the week. And uh, it, I typically work out for about an hour every day. And I try to hit these, these uh, thresholds for optimal health protocol. But it's a combination of uh, rowing, weightlifting, elliptical, stretching, running, or, or walking, is it somewhat dependent on how well you slept or how recovered you are, what you'll do? Or do you have some preset routine over the course of a week that you're going to do no matter what? It is preset uh, with what I have. That's actually been something I've been wanting to do, of course, because you know, Whoop renders a, a readiness score. Like, you know, you're ready to take on this amount of strain. Right. And it's been interesting to play with in terms of, do I keep the fixed schedule? If I did poorly the night before, do I overexert myself? I haven't figured that one out yet. And so given that I, I do work out with others that, and like the, val the value of having a workout partner is that you help that person be their best. And so I guess I've opted for my relationship with the other person of I'm going to show up and be my very best, even if I feel terrible or whoop is telling me that I'm going to overstrain today. <laughs> I've prioritized that social relationship, but uh, yeah, I'd say I don't have a good answer for this other than um, I keep my exercise very consistent. I just tried to push through independent of uh, how I feel. Well, it's so funny. So much of, of life is like, what do you want? Like, what are your goals? And I think if your goal is, you know, happiness, general health, good sleep, I wouldn't necessarily change anything about what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, Will, you, um, you've changed my life. Oh, literally. thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, really, it, uh, it was the critical thing that enabled me to get my shit together. 
Well, that means a lot. And I, I've experienced that firsthand as well. It's funny, you build the technology, then the technology builds you. But um, yeah. It, yeah, it is quite powerful when you see, when you see it in the data, what, what you can do and change. And I think that if we really pull ourselves, zoom ourselves out, and we try to, with the greatest level of soberness possible to muster, and we try to identify how might we be as primitive as Homo erectus was a million years ago, to our future selves in 50 years from now? Like, how might we look back and say, hey, man, like you haven't innovated on your axe design for a million years. You got to get to work. <laughs> I don't think the future of being human is deducible from first principles alone. I don't think the future is me uh, better, smarter, faster, or my kids better, smarter, faster. Certainly, we're going to make improvements. If we're really looking at the future of being human, the future of intelligent and conscious existence, I think we have to to incorporate what I call zero principles thinking. It's it's things that are beyond our awareness. They're discoveries that exist. Uh, so, for example, when Alpha when Deep uh, when AlphaGo DeepMind's AlphaGo beat the world best Go player, one of the observers said it was like watching Go from an alternate dimension. It wasn't that AlphaGo was faster at making moves. It was that it was an entirely foreign form of intelligence and that made moves from some other dimension. I think the future of being human is from another dimension. And you can't get from the other dimension uh, from first principles thinking of what we know today. And if we accept that, that we may not even be able to describe, imagine, articulate in any way what the future of human, of human existence may be, it inspires a different approach in how we go about our lives. And so as we think about, for example, building on what you were saying of do, what does a person do on a daily basis um, and what, how they might imagine themselves in the future, it's an imagination set of both becoming better, uh, faster, smarter, also knowing that this zero, zero principle endpoint is uh, equally worthy. So I guess in that sense, it's like, don't work to be number one, be a zero. It's very <laughs> counterintuitive. Well, that's uh, that's beautiful and existential all at the same time, and uh, and exciting, Brian. This has been a lot of fun, and and we're definitely going to have to ha have you back on the podcast as Colonel does more and more things, and as Whoop and Colonel uh, continue to work together. Where can people uh, learn more about you or learn more about what you're building? Colonel dot com, K E R N E L dot com, and then I'm on Twitter. Brian, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we'll get you back soon. Thank you, Will. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you to Brian for coming on the Whoop podcast. You can learn more about the study between Whoop and Kernel at uh, whoop.com slash locker. A reminder, you can use the code WILLAHMED to get 15% off a Whoop membership. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. Stay healthy, folks. Stay in the green. Stay in the green.